let's crack open a beer and share some thoughts. Welcome to Opinions, and we're back. We've got beer in glass, but once again, we're not alone, are we, mate? No, no, we can't stop having guests on, Steve, even though <laughs> we've fallen out of seat now as well. It's two, two shows running. But we have Owen Walsh with us. Welcome, Owen. Well, thanks for having me. Before we get started, I want to do the whole fanboy thing and say I've been a listener of the podcast for a very long time, uh, all the way back to the Beer Clock Show. Uh, early days. Uh, it was one of the one of the shows that really, when I was beginning with my beer journey, um, really got me into it and got me a good sense of like what the UK beer scene was all about. So delighted to finally be on the show. Um, and we've all got beer in glass ready to go this evening. So Martin, I know you and I are drinking the same, but let's uh, let's let's see what our guest has, has got in his glass and, and and what he's enjoying. So I wanted to go a little bit local today because, um, you know, we're going to talk about that in a little bit about, you know, how much the Belgian and Brussels beer scene has changed. So I have a TRM de L'Empereur uh, from Brasserie L'Hermitage, which is a new brewery here in Brussels. It's a jasmine tea pale ale. And these guys, uh, they're about three years old now, and they do a really good line in uh, tea-infused pale ales. They have another one, which is probably my favorite, but I couldn't get a hold of it. But this one is drinking quite well. And I, I noticed that was in a can as well. Oh. Yes, actually, that's true. Um, they just installed their canning line um, last month. Uh, which is still which, quite a rarity, isn't it, in, in Belgium? It is. It's funny. You have a sort of a dichotomy in, in Belgium of like the really big ones like Deuvel. Um, they do a lot of canning, Deuvel Rodenbach. Um, they do a lot of canning, particularly for export, but you'll see it on the supermarkets here. And then you have the new guys who've been only up for a couple of years. They're really investing in canning machines now. Like I think if you're opening a brewery in Belgium today, you best be putting in a canning machine rather than a bottling machine. And then you have like the guys in between who are still bottling away in their 33 centiliter bottles. And Steve, what, what do you want to say what we've got in the glass? <laughs> yep. We have got uh, a bit of a festive beer do, do you, or, or certainly a, a festive themed beer. I would uh, say so. Well, we've got the recent <laughs> release from Signature Brew uh, in collaboration with The Darkness, and it's called Bell's End, which obviously goes um, very much in line with their festive offering as, as a Christmas tune. Uh, this is an extra seasonal bitter coming in at 5.2%, and, and it's one I'm very much looking forward to, to having a go at. Should we dive in then? Yeah, let's, let, let's get in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, Les. Can I ask a question? Extra seasonal bitter... Presumably, that's a play on an extra special bitter. Then, I guess. I'm I'm assuming so, and it's in that um, similar sort of range, five point two percent. And actually, do you know what? It is actually really tasty bitter. Yeah, it's, I don't. It's got I don't a real winter feel to it. Yeah, they've they've not they've they've certainly not put any seasonal spices or or, or any adjuncts in it. It is a it is a straight up bitter, isn't it? But yeah, I I, I agree, Martin. It is proper proper in keeping with the season. It's um, it's kind of earthy, woody. Um, there's there's a slight sort of dark fruit hit at the end there, um, and then it does leave you with this lovely sort of dry, lasting bitterness at the end, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, I would say it's definitely within. If you were talking about the ESB as a style, I'd, I would say it's in that style range. It's a little bit, just a little bit hints of um, you know berries, fruit going on there. Um, it's only a free thirty can though. 
It is. We're, let's let's try for, for a change. <laughs> let's try and fail as we normally do. <laughs> to take our time. Why we um why we chat to Owen a little bit and and, and and learn a little bit because I think I think we've we've made a few hints there, uh, Owen. You're based in Belgium. Yep. Um, which maybe some of our listeners uh didn't didn't pick up from our, our initial introduction there. Uh, you do have a blog um brussels beer city yeah probably a bit more than it's, it's more than just a blog it's a website there's associated podcasts and and, and now there's there's full-on books as well um but before we jump all the way forward to, to to brussels beer city obviously you must have started your drinking journey somewhere uh and, and apart from you know going over the years with the beer o'clock show and 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 you know joining us for our journey how, how did you first get involved in beer? Uh, where did that relationship begin? And, and how did that then kind of bring you full circle to, to, to now doing what you do? Um, it's a good question because um, like when I, I always tell people, like when I started drinking, it was cider. When I was like 17, 18, I was a very good boy. I only started drinking towards the end of my teens. Uh, it was always cider. Couldn't stand beer. Couldn't stand the taste of it. Couldn't stand the smell of it. And I only started drinking it when I was at university out of necessity. Um, and my like real beer awakening, if that's what you want to call it, um, that really started when I moved to Belgium. And I think as anybody who tells you, so I moved to Belgium in 2009 to study. And I think as anybody who will tell you, there's two surefire things that will get you uh, in the good books of the in-laws if you get them under control early on when you move here. And that's beer and cycling. So I'm pretty lazy. I do have a racing bike, but it doesn't see as much action, I think, as 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 yours does, Steve. Um, so I got into beer uh, probably around 2010, 2011, you know, the usual stuff. Uh, very heavy nights on the Duval, I remember particularly. Um, but just drink- one of those stories. We've all got, yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to hear my, my bad Duval story. It involves, it involves a, a fatal mixture of Duval and gin. Not, not, not in the same drink, but uh, consecutively. And then I was into just the, the standards, you know, the chimes and, and all that. Nothing very exciting. Um, and it was only really uh, probably halfway through the decade, maybe 2013, 14. Um, there was a bottle shop. I remember very clearly a bottle shop opened up around the corner from where I was living in Brussels at that time. It was called Malt Attacks. And it, doesn't, it sounds pretty inconsequential, but I have to remember in Brussels back then, it was only one brewery. There are two breweries by that point in the city. Uh, craft beers, we would talk about it, wasn't really a thing. So it was like, it was a really big thing that this beer shop had opened up. And I remember going in there and, you know, I just, I'd, I'd start off quite tentatively picking up a couple of Sierra Nevada pale ales, some dead, uh, some dead pony club and some punk IPA when, you know, that was still something acceptable to do for a self, self-described beer snob. Um and then just from there, like getting into the Belgian beer scene, you know, um, seeing what was out there beyond the standards. So like tasting the local breweries here, Brussels Beer Project was around at that point. Brasseur de la Seine, which I think probably a lot of people who are listening to this will have heard of, had been around for a few years. So just getting to know what was around, getting a bit more explorative, trying to see what was there. And then um, I made the decision to go and study beer for two years. Um, in night school what did that entail studying beer studying it's a good question martin uh it's the <laughs> <laughs> well i mean if of all of all the countries in the world where you should be able to do that 
Belgium is absolutely the place where you think you might be. Um, and in Belgium, you have, you have these night schools, which are basically you can go there to study anything. So while I was doing beer, you could do cheesemongering, you could do chocolate, you could do wine, pizza making, ice cream making, butchery, whatever. If you had a, you had a, a hobby or a trade that you were interested in, you could go, you could sign up and you could, you could pay for your classes. So it was two years, uh, which was insanely long. And it was basically year one was all about this is beer, these are the raw ingredients. This is how it's made. And these are the different styles. And then the second year was all about beer and food pairings. So like f- trying to work out what dishes work well with food, uh, visiting breweries, talking to people in the industry. Um, basically with the idea that at the end of it, you become what in Belgium is called a zitologue, which is essentially, I think a good analog would be like the Cicerone program. If you know it in the UK or the um, Institute of Brewers and Distillers in London, they also have a certification program. Basically, that you could go out into the world and say, you know, I know about beer. I've studied it for two years. It was way too expensive. If anybody who's listening, they, they don't run. They, uh, it was so successful that they canceled. We were the last intake of that course. Um, so I'll tell you. Um, it was way too expensive. It was uh, way too long. But it really did give me a good basis of understanding about, like, you know, like some of the some of the more complicated things around brewing, which I wouldn't have understood, and like tasting and doing workshops and presentations. Um, so I'd finished that and I was, you know, I paid 800 euros to do that course, which is not insignificant. Uh, and I was kind of feeling a bit of pressure as to like what to do with it. So the idea for the blog came along and then that sort of takes me all the way from about 2017 up to here in 2020 in a nutshell. Steve, so that's someone else who we've got on the show with facts. So that's someone that is actually certified. (laughs) Oh, look, no, 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 no. Let's not, let's not, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, uh, This course was very much a, you, you come to the classes, you do the work that is, that is assigned to you and you will pass. There was, was, it was very much a sort of, there is no, there is no instinct here to pass, to fail people. It was all about getting people over the line. So Uh, um, you still put in the, you still put in two years worth of graph though. Yeah. Where I'm sitting. No, it was really interesting. And what it did was, you know, it, it, it connected me with some, some nice people in the business here in, in Belgium. It got me out to visiting breweries that I wouldn't necessarily have visited. You know, this country has a lot of like old breweries that aren't really, I mean, a lot, a lot like the, U, the UK, you know, old family breweries that are kind of struggling to keep themselves contemporary and that you would kind of fall off of your radar if you didn't go and visit them and talk to them um, because they're not making the latest trends or they don't maybe have the sort of cachet of the monks or the Lambic brewers, um, but are still making really good beer. So that was really interesting. And yeah, learning about how beer is made, learning about how to talk about it was, was good. And then I just basically leveraged that um, to start up the blog. So what else does the like Brussels beer city encompass? I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll talk in a bit more in detail about the, the, the book later, but it's a blog. You've been, you talk to people, you've done other bits of writing. Mm. Um, Tours? Yeah, well, the universe has shrunk a little bit (laughs) since the spring. So I think back in, if if we'd been talking, if we'd been doing this interview 12 months ago, you'd been talking to somebody who was like full on, ready to go, doing, you know, had planned uh, uh, city tours, uh, pub crawls, um, historical tours all of that stuff based around beer in Brussels and also was, had, had, a, had a roster of workshops that I could do either independently myself, which what I, which what I was doing with some of the beer shops and, and restaurants around town, and then also doing you know, corporate gigs, people hiring me in to do uh, team buildings. Of course, none of that happens anymore. 
Um, I know there are people who have very successfully jumped on the virtual beer tasting and team building uh, train, but that just did not appeal to me one little bit. Um, I've taken an ultra cautious approach when, approach when it's come to you know tours and workshops. I don't feel comfortable that I could give the level of sanitary protection that people require. I think uh, I don't. I didn't want to be. Um, the you know patient zero or or uh, suspect zero in a super spreader <laughs> event, which knowing my knowing my ability to clean glassware could have been highly likely. Um, so that involved cancelling a whole lot of events around March and April, and then it's just come back to the writing. So at the moment, Brussels Beer City. I mean, the book aside, uh, we just wrapped a fir- we. I always say we. Um, I just wrapped the first series of the Brussels Beer City podcast back in October, and I'm. Um, currently lining up the next season to hopefully go live in the end of January. And then it's mostly trying to get an article out every week, every two weeks, every three weeks on the blog about some aspect of beer in Brussels. And then, yeah, there's some writing gigs that people will um, pay me to write for them, which is always nice. Uh, It's a shame about some of those plans, but hopefully, you know, as if and when things improve in 2021, you'll be still get some of those off the ground. Ah, yeah. None of them are particularly time sensitive. And I mean, anyone who's read the blog or anyone who's read the book, like it's a, there's a ready-made sort of schema of, of workshops and tastings and tours, particularly tours and particularly were the most fun. Cause I love, I love take, I used to, what I would do back in 2019, we'd, we'd go out on a bike ride and we'd visit all the old breweries and we would drink some beers along the way on the street and have a nice time, have a chat and then finish up in a pub. So hopefully, who knows, maybe not 2021, but the end of the year, next year or 2022, some of that stuff can get back off the ground. But I don't want to bring the tone down too, <laughs> too much. Not, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Yeah, we get into that, I'm sure. Was, was, was the podcast always in, in, in the plans for what you wanted to do? Because cause before that, you, you released the short-lived Cabin Fever yeah. series, which I know both Martin and I guested on, um, on, on a couple of occasions. And you had this ever-revolving series of guests alongside you as the host. And obviously, they, they were guests from all over the world as, as, as well. So was it the onset of lockdown that, that gave you the impetus to do that? Or, or was that something that was always there in terms of, I'd like to do a podcast, but I'm not yeah. quite sure how I'm going to do it? Well, it was sort of two different things, um, or three maybe. I was in, I was literally, when lockdown started, I was in the middle of putting together a completely different podcast. And that podcast was site-specific, where I would take people to bars and we would drink a beer together in person and we would talk about the beer and the bar and, and what that means to them. I think I managed to get two or three interviews done before and I remember very clearly, I think probably my third interview for that podcast was two days before lockdown in March this year, where everything in, in Belgium closed down, bars, restaurants, shops, everything. So that was immediately put on hiatus. You know, nobody wanted to go and do an interview. There was nowhere we could go and do an interview. I had this very expensive equipment. I was stuck at home, as I'm sure you guys remember back then. There was a certain novelty about it even though I did have to take care of my small children on a daily basis, which as any parent will tell you during lockdown was absolutely a nightmare. Um, for, the first couple, for the first couple of weeks, at least trying to find some sort of rhythm. And, and then once the novelty wore off, increasingly uh, less pleasant, but they went back to school eventually. So uh, that was sort of where the podcast came from. I was feeling a bit lonely. Um, you know, you guys, we, we would have met the last time in person in Dublin in November last year. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and anyone who's in, anyone who's interested in beer and involved in beer travel is such an important 
is such a big part of what you're doing because you're going to festivals wherever you may be going or you're going to events, you're going this, that, or the other, you're just going exploring. You couldn't do that anymore. Um, so I was feeling a bit down in the dumps and I thought, well, look, I have all this equipment and I will be doing the other podcast eventually. So why don't we just test run and see how good you are putting a podcast together by doing this thing, by getting together with all of the people who one way or another over the course of 2020, I would have expected to have seen um, or engaged with or met or had a drink with. Um, and that's where Cabin Fever came came over. And it was, it was really more like a self-help podcast. Um, <laughs> And I made the crazy idea. This will tell you how, how, how much time I had on my hands back then in March and in April. I made the crazy idea of doing two episodes a week. Yeah, that now, was nuts. Uh, <laughs> now, I know you guys, because you guys shifted to one episode a week. Um, and then you subsequently shifted back to, to, to uh, once every two weeks. That was just, I, I, I don't know what I was doing. But it kept me busy um, in, a way that, in a way that I hadn't been before. And I wasn't working at the time. I still, I, I'm still not working. Um, so I had the time. And then once lockdown unraveled here you know i was able to go back out was able to finish off the other podcast launch that and then and then and then yeah cabin fever was didn't really feel like it was necessary anymore but you've just done kind of a i don't want to say a grand send-off to cabin fever or i hope so no offense i hope it is a grand send-off and <laughs> yeah, isn't yeah. needed again it was like uh, when I, I would always, I would always say this. I think I said this on the last like pr- episode proper. It's like I really, I mean, I've loved it, but I really don't want to have to do it again. I really don't want to be talking to you guys again. Um, and yeah, as you, Steve, as you said, we just on Thursday last week, and it's a nice segue maybe into like the beers we've been drinking of the last um, week. Um, we did a sort of live Christmas themed extravaganza with a lot of the guests that we would have had on during um, edition one, lockdown one point which was a lot of fun. That, damn it, you spotted my silky segue. <laughs> that's, that's, this is that's what all... happens when you invite other podcast hosts on your show. You know? It is. They, they, they see what's going on. But that does make a lovely segue in, in, into what we've been up to uh, for the last couple of weeks. And as as um, we're talking about the, the Cabin Fever Christmas show, Mark Martin, you was, you was involved in that, wasn't you, for, for, for a bit? Yeah, I was on the first session and I did follow Owen's recommendation of ordering the uh, four, four Christmas beers, four Belgian Christmas beers. Um, I got them from Etre Gourmet because uh, Hotsburn and Black had already sold out when I yeah. had a quick look. They sold out really, very quickly. Um, and I have to admit, there were some four very, very nice beers on there. Um, and we, I mean, we started off in like the sevens and it just got stronger really. I mean, yep. St. Bernard's Christmas Ale. I, I, for one, am glad I wasn't drinking it from a 750 bottle because I think that could have gone horribly wrong. Um, I, I was glad to have the free 30 milliliter version. Owen. Hang on, um, was, was someone drinking it? On, <laughs> yeah. was, was that so, you, Owen? <laughs> yeah, so obviously being the cheapskate that I am, um, I did not order a box with either of the two people providing them, which meant that I had to go out and find my own St. Bernard's uh, Christmas Ale. Um, and in the in my local uh, beer warehouse, they only had seventy five CL bottles. So uh, trooper that I was, and I did pop it honestly with the intention not to drink it all. But you guys know that once you start these things, you get swept up in the in in the mood, and then very quickly that bottle is emptied. And I did not feel good the next day. I'll tell you that. Much. <laughs> And that, that, that went on for a few hours in the end, didn't it? It went on for a, a good three, three and a half hours, I, yeah. I think. 
we did a three hour show and then we did an hour long after party. And then I got the, I got the word from downstairs that I needed to wrap it up because it was too late and I was making too much noise. Oh, I, I, I've had that before. <laughs> <laughs> For the, much the same reasons being said. I mean, the Christmas ale um, came in at a very, t- a very t- good 10%. But I mean, again, all of the Belgian beers, the, I mean, with the still an act, Steve. Yeah. Um, the 2020. Now, I didn't take a picture of any of the beers I drank on Thursday night because I realised that I didn't really get my glassware sorted. And I bear <laughs> bon vu on, mm. on Twitter judging my pictures, so I, I shied away from it. Yeah, there's there's no way you would got away with posting a picture of still an act if it wasn't in the correct glass. Yeah, and I definitely haven't got the correct glass. Jezza um, would have been all over that, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but that 2020 still an act was absolutely delicious. It was absolutely tasting good, delicious. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but all the choice was all good. The winter mess from Brasserie de la Seine at the start. Yeah. So, you know, it, and, and a Duranka Christmas beer um, was very good. So yeah, it was, it was a thoroughly good evening. I stayed in and watched everyone else joining in all the mm. other, all the other friends who, who came along and that three and a half hours did fly by. I mean, I mean, Owen's timing because some of the conversations just went on quite a bit. There was a moment when I thought, Owen's not going to get to that loo between session two and session three. <laughs> he didn't. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> but no, that was good fun. So thanks again for inviting me on. Oh, you're welcome. And, and that's, that's still available on YouTube now, isn't it? So we'll, 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 is, put, yeah. we'll put a link in the show notes if anybody wants to go and watch um, Owen's wheels slide, slowly come loose and then completely fall off. You, I kept, you, you I kept saying... I kept thing. S- I kept saying that my nose was getting redder because it was cold in the room that I was in, but <laughs> it, it, to those protestations, nobody believed me. Can't imagine why. <laughs> in, in addition to that, we've, we've had a couple of other on, online events this week, haven't we, Martin? Yeah, despite uh, restrictions being lifted, lifted in, the U, in the UK, by and large, it's a uh, sit outside with your mates kind of environment or nothing at all if you're in the north of the country. Um, so yeah, we've been we've been back online. It's the first Tuesday of the month, Tuesday the first of December gone. Uh, was our Christmas bottle share, Steve? Yeah, and what a interesting night that turned out to be as as, as well. So um, as, there was as a few it, strong beers. Well, I think everyone decided that they were just going to go for it because it was it was Christmas, and I think most people had actually taken the the following day off work. I, luckily enough, I was still off work uh, at, at that point. But yeah, there were some there were some big beers drunk. I think certainly my average ABV wasn't much below eight or eight and a half for the six seven or so beers I had. Yeah, well, we did so have a few chunky ones in there. Um, you know, a barley wine from Weird Beard. We had um, SS Nine from Leon C. Um, and, but while we're on the Belgian theme, I'd just like to compliment Leon C on their sessionable take on uh, Le Chouf. And I, I yeah. think Owen would have quite appreciated <laughs> that as well. It was actually uh, really well done and it really did hit the spot because, I mean, I don't know what you think of um, Le Chouf, Owen, but I find it a very drinkable beer despite the 8% odd uh, strength of it. This was around about the 5% but had lost none of the uh, the characteristics that you'd like to see in it. It was a really, really good take on it. Yeah, those uh, it's sort of classic Belgian beer, isn't it? That's highly drinkable and highly lethal at the same time. Yes, yes. I think for Matt, um, who has joined Leon C, and they get the choice of doing a beer style when they first join the brewery, he's had many a messy night and day <laughs> on the shoof. So I think this was his little ode to those memories, such as they are. 
But yes, yeah. no, they, but we, um, me and Steve weren't content with just doing a bottle share that evening, were we, Steve? Oh, oh no, we had to do something before bottle share as well, didn't we? Um, yes. We, we were lucky enough to get invited to uh, an online launch of two beers. So Utopian were launching their latest lager and they were also at the same time launching their latest collab with Yeasty Boys, which was an ESB. Uh, and you and I uh, and many others were invited to partake in, I suppose, the first pause of, of, of those yeah. beers and, and to listen to the brewers that were involved and, and to be able to ask any questions. And it was, um, it, it was great to kind of see the audience enjoying those beers and really also getting involved in the, the discussions and, and asking quite a lot of questions of the hosts. And I, I think, I think that the interesting thing for me is if you look back six, seven, eight, nine months, people are very, very comfortable engaging online now as to when you go back to some of those early zoom events and those early zoom launches there was very little chat and very little involvement from from people but now folk are just so used to it that they're just they're almost itching for the presenter to finish speaking so that they can start asking questions and getting involved in the discussion i'd agree with that and we've done three maybe four utopian between us and I think you could actually use the utopian timeline almost as noticing that also the way people were hosting it as well, much more comfortable going from Rich, the owner, uh, and, and the, start, the person who started up utopian, to then saying over to the brewer, back to Rich, and then over to Stu from Yeasty Boys, back to Rich. Everyone was a lot more comfortable with the dynamics as well, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. But it, it, was, it was great to be involved in two uh, very tasty beers, actually. The, um, the, the ESB certainly seems to be a flavour of the month this, this winter because obviously we're, I'm going to say the word drinking, finishing, no. <laughs> finished um, one now. But obviously um, Yeasty Boys have, have released one as well. And I'm sure I've seen a couple of others that, that, that have been released this year. So it, it certainly seems like it's a uh, style that people are beginning to fall in love with again. Yeah, um, I mean, John Keeling was on the Utopian tasting and um, I think high praise indeed for Otherworld because I'm sure the words second best ESB got, got mentioned. Um, he, he declined to say what, the what was in the first place, but we, can, uh, we won't have answers on a postcard for that one, please. I, I feel like John says that about every other ESB. Yes, oh, yeah, I'm sure he does. <laughs> even the one, even the ones uh, that he did in Fuller's Friends, he probably would say it was still the second best one. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it was actually, it was, it was a really nice take on the, again, on the ESB style. It had very much the sort of classic colour profile as well. Um, very interesting artwork on the label. Um, and, and when Stu from EC Boys actually mentioned the way they did it, because it was someone looking out of a window, it was sort of to mark what had been going on, but people were, you know, looking out of windows at the world rather than being part of it. Um, I thought it was quite a good way of describing you know, the last six to nine months and in some, in some places what's still going on as well. Um, it was the hour I flew by, I mean, because they were still chatting. I mean, Steve had to leave to um, open up the bottle share call to go and drink another seven or eight beers because what else do you do on a, on a Tuesday night? knowing that two days later, one of you is going to, going to drink strong Belgian beers as well. <laughs> drink responsibly, kids. 
<laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the timing on that was impeccable uh, for, for us. But we were, uh, as I say, very, very grateful uh, to be invited along. Obviously, as part of that, we were sent some beers to try. So thanks to both Utopian and Yeasty Boys for sending us the beers and for inviting us along to that. Uh, but yeah, um, the ESB very much seems to be the... I'm going to say the flavour of, of 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 this this winter, um, although they don't seem to hang around in my glass for very long because this Bell's End by Signature Brew has gone again, despite my best efforts to to make it last. It, it has gone very very quickly. Snap, the mind's gone as well, and um, a bit like uh, you know one of the things I said about Other Worlds from um, Yeasty Boys in Utopian. This beer especially is just one of those beers wanting me to be on cask in a pub, mm. not a bar or a tap room as much as I love them, but in a what I class as a proper pub, nice and warm and cosy, just drinking pint after pint of it. It would go down so well this time of year. That was a, it's a really good beer. I mean, thank you again to Signature Brew for sending them in. Um, and I'm glad I've got another one in the cupboard because it's, it's a really good example of the style. I think it's, it's one of it's, Signature Brew's best beers this year. It's it's done it's done really well as as, as well, like you say. I mean, I, I like the little I like the little spin on the word in that they've called it an extra seasonal bitter. Um, the fact that it's a collab with the darkness and it's you know it's got the the, the same title as one of probably the the, the, the greatest Christmas songs of, of of all time as as well. And then it does everything that an ESB needs to do. It's 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 all of the right flavors in all of the right places, and it, it just finishes leaving you wanting more. That is exactly how I, I do. I would, if we weren't, you know, doing our best to, to actually showcase some other beers tonight, I would quite happily have another one. Carbonation was good in the glass as well from the can. Yeah, yeah, worked worked really well. Um, I think we've been trying to drag that out to, to to allow Owen to catch up. I know what we're drinking at the end of the night, so I'm just pacing myself. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Have you got any um, more thoughts on, on on what you've got in your glass there? It's lovely and drinkable. It's 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 something that I mean, not not. I mean, it, not to be taken as an insult to the brewers, but it's just very easy drinking. You know, there's a nice little bit of tea. I'm not a tea drinker, so I'm always curious to see how tea is expressed in beer. Um, but it's a nice little spiciness, a little bit of floralness, but it's it's really just nice and easy drinking. Um, I've had it in the fridge for a while now, so I thought I might as well drink it now because otherwise it's going to lose its freshness. See, now that's, that's really interesting because I'm not a tea drinker uh, at all. And my narrow-mindedness would, would lead me to, if, if I saw a, a tea beer, I wouldn't even think about picking it up to, to try it because it's, it's not something I enjoy. Yeah. Well, I think probably at this stage, my lack of tea drinking is ideological or curmudgeonly rather than anything kind of taste. Um, I was going to say, as an Irishman, avoiding tea drinking, for goodness sake, man. Why do you think I live in Belgium, Martin? Um, <laughs> No, uh, no, but it is lovely, and it also it gives a you know it's a nice flavor that I don't always come come across. So it's I I, I like I was saying they do another tea beer, um, which is uh, more of an Earl Grey type tea, and it is that actually is probably my favorite of the brewery. But like I just couldn't get a hold of it uh, for this evening. I think the Earl Grey is the one which I've seen expressed the most in in beer is the Earl Grey elements that come to it. I think uh, yeah. marble and. The aforementioned Yeasty Boys as well have both um, yeah. dabbled with that. So, yeah, no, but it is quite interesting. I am a tea drinker, but I probably still prefer coffee-related uh, beers than tea-related beers. Well, while Martin decides whether he prefers tea or coffee in beer, we should probably <laughs> open our second beer, mate. 
So this is from the aforementioned Utopian launch. Um, it was to celebrate their brand new to market black lager called CERN Specialni. We've probably just butchered that as we normally do with pronunciations, but I think that's pretty close. This is a, where's the ABV? This is a 5.9% black lager with what I've got to say, and I know I've been quite vocal on, on Twitter about this as well. It's one of the most beautiful cans that, that I have ever seen. The, the, the artwork and the use of color or the use of two colors on that can is, is absolutely stunning. I, I, I fell in love with it the minute it came through the, the, in, in the post. It's very clever, really well done, but still utopian. Absolutely, yes, yeah. But with just a few little tweaks, isn't it? And they're explaining this on the, on the launch, weren't they, as to some of the little tweaks that have been made within the imagery, just to um, update it a little bit and also make it a little bit truer to their heritage as well. Yeah, but I mean, it's still, I mean, I've got it beside the Utopian Glass, and there's enough similarities there for you to say it's one and the same branding. Yeah, you know what it is yeah. straight away. Um, but right now, although I have tasted it before, all I can do is I can just smell this black lager, mate. Let's, let's, let's dive in. Cheers. 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 I have just, I've just realised in, in, in our eagerness to get into our beers, we didn't even ask Owen what he's drinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Owen, um, what are you drinking? <laughs> Uh, I am drinking a Thunder Black Choco IPA. Now, I couldn't get a, a black lager. It's not a style. It's really brewed over here. Uh, I couldn't get a black lager, but I got a black IPA instead from Brasserie Atrium, which are another sort of new boys. Again, a can, as you guys can see. Um, founded by a Belgo-Brazilian couple. Uh, the man's from Belgium and the woman, Paula, is from Brazil. And it is a black IPA brewed with cac uh, cocoa nibs and dry hopped with Simcoe and Cascade. 5.8%. Sounds all right to me. What's it like? Sounds lovely, yeah. It's um, it's interesting. I'm not. I, I think I need to let it warm up a little bit to see if the chocolate bits and the hoppy bits. That's the professional lingo that I learned on the job. <laughs> uh, marry up a little bit, but you can get some kind of hoppy resinous on the nose, and it's very chocolate bitter. Initial thoughts again, Steve, on the uh, black lager. Uh, uh... Again, this is I because I was so blown away by this on on, on the launch that I immediately ordered a, a load of it online, um, and I feel like I've drunk nothing but this since since last week. Um, I absolutely love it. It's it's fantastic. It's got um, the body on it. First of all, it's it's not light, but it's not thick. But it's it's got a fantastic body on it. The aroma is is that there are kind of roasted malty notes in there. You get into the flavour and it's straight away you get the dark roasted notes coming through. There's a little bit of dark chocolate. Then there's this bit of a coffee hit on the end of it. But none of that is overpowering. And what it still says to you at the end of the day is, I'm a lager. You can, you can drink me. You can session me. You can pint me. I'm here, drink me. It's, it's just such, it's such a delicious beer. It's so well done. I am absolutely blown away by how good this beer is. It, you know, utopian of not some beers out of the park this year, but it feels like they've saved their best till last. I was going to say something similar about every time they release one, like when they did the rain book and I thought, wow, right. Okay. For, for utopian, they can't do a better beer than this, this year. And then this lands. Yeah. And 
you know, I, I was quite open on the um, tasting and on my untapped trekking. So Budvar Dark is my benchmark, my baseline. And I actually, uh, you know, me and Steve have both said how much of a fan we are of the Budvar Dark. Again, probably about a percentage less, but very easy to drink, really tasty. And this does smash it. This really does smash it as it's raised the level of what a dark lager can be like. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting maybe a little bit more chocolate than you described there, Steve, but all everything else you said about it is all in a well balanced package. And, you know, I know you say it's pintable, I think you'd feel it after a while because it is almost at six percent. Um, but you would be able to drink quite a few of these and then find out how much damage it had done. One of the things that Rich at Utopian has made a point of saying over the course of this year, which is when we've really got to know him and them and their ethos, whatever lager style they're doing, they want people to just be able to drink it. They want it to be drinkable. And so far, I would say they've ticked those boxes every time. I mean, you know, people have their favourites between maybe some of the rubber lagers, the Maybach. I mean, they've brought out that 10 degrees now, the Czech one, which is about 38, 39 they, they 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 know what they're doing with the lager it's, yeah. it's fantastic I and mean, it's like some of the other breweries in the uk now like don zoco i mean you know people will always reference keller pills but braybrook it's given lager a real shot in the arm of what it can be in that style and i think as they often say there's nowhere really to hide either if you don't get it right you will know and um you hope you've been getting it right Absolutely, I can't. I can't disagree with any of that. We we should probably, knowing the speed that we're going at already with with this, though, we should probably move things on a little bit before we've got no beer to to, to drink while we're talking. So let's get into this week's questions. Opinions, 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 opinions. So first of all, um, just to mention the, the the other poll that we're not featuring tonight, uh, we did ask a question asking if people were looking for any beer books uh, this Christmas, whether there was anything on their Christmas list in terms of reading that they were looking for. Um, we had 154 votes on this one, but we had loads of great comments uh, of people recommending beer books that they're looking for. So if you want to have a look at some of those recommendations, if you're looking for some some reading, if you're looking for something to put on, on, on your Christmas list as a last minute stocking filler, Click through uh, on the question in the show notes and that will take you to the original question and then you can read through the feed underneath it and you'll be able to see all the wonderful recommendations that have been made. So thanks to everybody that, that got involved in that and made a recommendation as, as well in terms of, of the books. The one that kept coming up again and again, which I think is going to be a real big seller this Christmas, is um, Pete's, Pete Brown's new book about design and, and, and artwork in beers. That beer, seems to be... Beer by design, wasn't it? Yeah, that's, that's the one that seems to be at the top of everyone's list in terms of the, the book that they want to read yeah, he's been a busy writer this year um pete isn't he penning his third book this year now already i think so yeah he's doing is he doing one for camera as well or as... matt curtis is doing one for camera yeah but yeah definitely um i think pete's doing his third self this is gonna be his third self-published book i think or something like that but he's been definitely been busy during lockdown with the writing Yes. Yeah. Well, we, we'll, we'll find out how difficult it is to self-publish a book in a while when we talk to, <laughs> to, to Owen about that. But let's 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 get into the, the main question this week, which was, um, do you think the pubs you love will recover from the impact of ongoing restrictions? We had 460 votes for this. 21.5% uh, of people said yes. 
30.9% of people said no. And on a rare occasion that we decided to include uh, a third option of unsure, 47.6% of people went for that. Now, I'm not surprised that the majority of people went for unsure because things seem to be changing, maybe not by the day, but certainly by the week here at the moment but let's um let's go through some of the comments that are made and then we'll get into our views uh, about this as well and it'll be really interesting to to balance our views to to owen's views as well in a completely different country who are going through a different set of restrictions and the the, the way in which they've, they've done things so first up from mark johnson some of my regular haunts will but some of the the others i love visiting on rare occasions across the country i just can't see Basically, I love all pubs, and so the answer is no. And then from the Manchi at the Pyman 7, sadly no. One I go to is already closed due to the first lockdown and restrictions afterwards. Love pubs and bars, but feel they have been thrown under a bus this time, and doubt I will see many of the ones around here reopen. From Ben Stone at Benjamin Stone. One of my regular pubs is already closed permanently, and so it makes you wary for every pub out there. This government and their inept rules and general handling could rip the heart out of the industry. Naturally, I hope I'm wrong. From Josh at Witcher 77, the government said they'd follow the science. I haven't seen any data that has warranted the unfair restrictions being forced upon them. Many will survive, often from help by loyal customers, but the insufficient government financial help will mean others will not. From Beers Without Frontiers podcast at beers underscore frontiers. We've already lost two pubs in my town since lockdown one, so I can see a lot more being lost, especially wet-led pubs. This hokey-cokey mockdown means we will never reduce cases enough to get back to the more normal times. And then from James at Gammon Barron, no, pubs are on their knees already. I don't see any form of normality returning until at least after Easter. Unfortunately, I don't see some being able to survive that long. From Wim Fandangle at Wim Fandangle. I think we're yet to see the full impact COVID has or had. It's heartening to see communities and crowdfunders rally to support loved or essential venues, but whether pub culture remains the same after is yet to be seen. Table service, for instance, will affect viable profitability. And for work for Gary at Worksop Driver, voted unsure. A lot of them they normally make a lot of the profit in December from Christmas parties and family gatherings. But as they are unlikely to take place this year, they may not have the cash flow to see it out without further support. James, James Moosh, I hope so, but I'd be surprised if we get through this without any significant casualties among the pubs I visit regularly. None have officially gone yet, but another couple of months of closure or restrictions is going to have an effect. And then from Mappy Man at Mappy Man 1, can't see office working patterns ever going back to what they were. Spells worry for my favourites in cities that won't have the commuter pound. From eight beers a week and eight beers a week. I think it depends on how they can bounce back once they are allowed to trade fully. There's a risk that people have fallen out of the habit of going to the pub and replaced it with something else. It's how the pubs can react and win back customers that will keep them going, in my opinion. From Ash Orbit Collins, Ash Corbett Collins at Corbett Collins. Some will recover, some will never reopen, and none will be the same as they were before for many years. From Les O'Grady at Les O'Grady, difficult to see all pubs surviving and recovering from this. I hope that when they do reopen, there will be an overwhelming amount of support for them. And then finally, from Mr. Ian B at Mr. Underscore Ian Underscore B. Yes, definitely. Those that are important to me have an inner strength. A real mixture of responses there uh, with a lot of people leaning towards thinking, 
a lot of their favourite pubs and venues are going to suffer as, as a result and may never reopen as, as, as a result of that. Before I come to yours and, and, and my views on, on, on this, Martin, and sort of like what we're experiencing here in the UK, Owen, I want to chat to you about how things are over there in, in, in Belgium. How have the restrictions been like for you? Have we seen opening and closing and opening and closing? What does the situation look like? What does the future hold? Uh, you may not have all the answers to all of those questions, but certainly give us a feel for how it's been elsewhere. I would also preface this by saying I think it's a common enough feeling to feel like everybody's own government is the worst functioning government out there. Now, I will maybe make allowances for the government in the UK as being actually the objectively the worst but we can get into that maybe <laughs> we can get into that maybe on another time um because everybody thinks that the government is mishandling it uh, as for belgium so we went into lockdown i think it was probably march 16th that was the first lockdown and that was all pubs restaurants everything closed full stop closed everything closed um i remember i did a couple of rounds on my bike picking up some beers from 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 tap rooms and, and breweries around town just you know doing my bit in the full flushes of, of lockdown euphoria. Um, and then, you know, I think had I had, had this poll happen in the summertime, I would have been much more optimistic. So in, in Belgium, lockdown went through April and went through May. And I can't remember exactly when, but around June, July, things started to loosen up a little bit. You were allowed to go to the pub. You were allowed to go to the bar. You um, had to sanitize. Uh, you were supposed to give your name at the door and your contact details. <clears throat> now, as anybody who's ever visited Brussels will know, adherence to government regulations is generally a flexible concept at the best of times. And that was equally true during um, sort of the lockdown relief that we had in the summertime. Some buyers were very good at keeping details. Some buyers were not keeping details at all. But you could still go. Um, they, people had removed tables and chairs so that there was more space, fewer customers. Um, and we had a pretty good summer. Obviously, the consequences on the other side of that was that Belgium is one of the worst performing or at least had some of the worst numbers in Europe. Um, and we saw a massive spike then uh, in the autumn, as I think a lot of countries did as a consequence of I'm not going to say it was a consequence of the buyers being open, but it was a consequence of a general relaxation in society of of adherence to the rules and, and a relaxation of the rules themselves. And then I, th I have to say, I think it was October um, when things started looking pretty dicey in Antwerp and they were going into um, curfew. So 10, 10 PM curfews. And we thought in Brussels, Oh, look at them. They can't take care of themselves. And then probably about three weeks later, we were under 10 PM curfew, all bars and restaurants closed, all cinemas closed, everything closed, uh, everything shut down again the rest of the country followed a week or two later i can't remember exactly when because it feels like it's been going on forever but the situation we're in as of december is uh, bars and restaurants uh, tap rooms breweries everything is closed at least i reckon until the beginning of february unless something happens in january but the standard operating rules right now is that everything is closed um so um, non-essential shops reopened last week. So you could go back out to the, you know, to something that wasn't a supermarket. You could go to the clothes shop or the shoe shop or whatever. But before that, everything except non-essential supermarkets was closed. So it's been quite weird. Um, I did make the most of it when I could in the summertime. And I think it's interesting. You were talking about, you know, um, the impact of table service. Obviously, in Belgium, table service is generally speaking the standard. Craft beer bars are a little bit different. 
they they kind of act sort of as sometimes table service, sometimes not. The big the big difference here, and particularly because it was the summertime, was are you a buyer that had a terrace or are you a buyer that didn't have a terrace? And if you had a terrace, then you could usually expand that terrace into the street and take up some parking. And that meant that you could take maybe, if not 100% and 75% of, of your lost business. But if you didn't have a terrace, good luck. I mean, people didn't want to go drink. You know, it's the summertime. So generally speaking, people want to sit outside. Belgian buyers can be quite dark. Everybody knows that. Um, so people people weren't really interested in going inside. So a lot of places were pushing to have terraces or bigger terraces. And that worked as, as well as it could until, again, everything was closed down. So it's, um, I think, as I was saying, you know, had we had this conversation back in the summertime, I would have been pretty up, I would have been optimistic enough. I'm not generally optimistic as a person, but I would have been optimistic enough that buyers here would have survived. Looking at it now with no prospect of reopening for the next two months, uh, I really, um, I have my doubts and it's not necessarily, I think, you know, and, and stop me if I'm, if I'm rambling on, but like here, the situation is different because you don't have pubs and cafes and bars that are threatened by, you know, developers. Nobody's going to move in and take over a place and turn it into flats. You kind of have a different category of places. You have like the heritage places. So if anybody's ever been to Brussels, somewhere like Omortsu Beat, you know, uh, architectural place that is never going, you know, it's always going to be a cafe. The question is who's going to be owning it who's going to be managing it. So it's always going to be there, but the service might change. Then you have places that are sort of like zombie bars that are good depending on who's the owner. And maybe right now the owner is good, but because of lockdown, that person will go out of business and the brewery who owns it will send, will, will give the lease on to somebody else. You know, and that might that might change the vibe. Like thinking of a couple of inner city places that have in the last couple of years been really good with craft beer, but are still owned by Stella Artois, for example. And then you have the independent bars um, who are really struggling. Like, for example, I just saw today um, Mooder Lambic, which I'm guessing probably both of you guys have been to at one point or another when you visited Brussels. I've um, definitely been there more than once. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's pretty much the gateway place of anybody who's interested in in good beer in Brussels when they go come to visit. That's where they would go. They've launched a crowdfunding campaign uh, on top of a sell-off of their complete cellar, which happened earlier on in the year. And you can imagine their cellar is just chock-a-block of the most kind of exclusive lambics and gurzes and whatever you can do. And they got permission from the breweries who are usually quite reticent about putting bottles into the secondary market. And now they just launched a craft, uh, craft funding, a crowdfunding campaign because they could theoretically be 150,000 euros in debt by the new year because they just don't know when they can open and they have obligations to their staff. And uh, that would lead me to be quite worried about the state of some of the other buyers. If those guys are in serious trouble, then I can imagine there are others out there that are really hanging on. I had no idea that you were literally in that status of more or less a, a full hospitality lockdown until February. Yeah. That, that, that's come as, as a bit of a surprise to me because, I mean, at, at, least, at least here we've got this, choosing my words very carefully, <laughs> uh, ridiculous system of, of, of tiers where um, pubs and bars can and can't operate dependent on their levels of ability to be able to serve meals or, or, or not. But yep. yeah, I had no, I had no idea that you, you were, 
you, you know, it's, it's going to be February before you can even think about going out and, and, and drinking in, in, a, in a bar again. That, that, must be, that, that must be literally, you know, knowing the, the, the rich cultural beer history of, of Belgium, that, that must be literally ripping the heart out of your country right now. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, people are surprisingly stoic about the whole thing. I mean, on the surface, I think, you know, you, once you sit down and talk to people who are willing to talk about what their financial situation is, you might hear a completely different view on that. But people are, I mean, we did, like, just to be clear, like, we did faff around with the whole, uh, can be open. Or, so, it was, so I think in October, it was like, bars are closed, but bars that serve food can stay open. What, what, what constituted food didn't quite descend into the farce of is a scotch egg a substantial meal? But you guys have been to Belgium, and I think probably a lot of listeners to this would have been to Belgium. You know, there are bars out there who you would be surprised can produce a spaghetti bolognese or lasagna from their kitchen. So were those bars allowed to be open? People weren't sure, but that only lasted for about a week before the government in Brussels decided, no, nah, everything's closed. Everything's for takeaway. Um, and you know, maybe, maybe I get a different view of what the UK scene is like following the buyers and, and, and breweries that I do on Twitter who are maybe more plugged into like sorting out takeaway and doing all of that. But takeaway beers, it's, it hasn't really been a thing. It has been, it has been more like, um, you know, selling the beers that you have in your cellar or raffling them or auctioning them off. Um, but it's been really tough. It's just sort of fallen off the radar completely. You know, the, the, the prospect of going to a pub, I haven't even entertained it in the last month it's just because it hasn't been an option and i the way the government is seeing it i think is that they didn't want to faff around with with tears i mean belgium is a complicated place anyway because you have the three different governments who are in charge of health so brussels for example we have a curfew of 10 p.m but you go across the border into flanders and they have a curfew of 12 p.m or 12 a.m um which doesn't seem like much you know on the face of it but it's just these weird different rules that everybody has. So I think they just said, look, nothing is going to change. We're just going to say it's a strict lockdown until the beginning of spring in the new year. And we'll see if anything changes in the interim, but otherwise that's the way it is. Incidentally, Steve, Germany's hospitality is all closed until January now. Oh, okay. I, I had no idea about that. I, I don't, I suppose I don't really follow what, what's, what's going on elsewhere as much as I do here. But I think, I think it's interesting to see how, how it's being approached in different countries in, in, as opposed to how it's being approached here in the UK. And, you know, from, from our point of view, we are in, in the tiered system. And I know a lot of our listeners will, will, will be in a, a, a tier three area where they can't even think about going out to, to, to a pub for yeah. any reason. Um, whereas at the moment, Martin, you and I are, are in tier two, which does, even in tier two, presents its challenges to, to certainly some of the places that, that, that you and I in, in enjoy drinking at. So, you know, for instance, the, 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 the Vic in Colchester remains closed as of, as of now because they are wet led. Um, there's, there's been a couple of suggestions and hints that they're working on a plan to be able to reopen, but realistically are we going to see them open before christmas and and, and trading and even if they are they're certainly not going to be trading to, to the normal sort of december levels and and you know other places like like, like the owl house in chelmsford closed and, until further notice and and you know these are that these are places that certainly in our county that sometimes suffers from having 
very many good places to go and drink. At, at the moment, most of the best places are closed because they're because they're wet lead, and and that's that that's that's a shame. That's that's a real shame, isn't it? Well, it is when you know. In answer to the question, I am worried about the places that I love, whether they be local or otherwise. And to echo Mark's comment, you know, we can all love places that aren't necessarily the local places to us. Um, and I would include some of the places that I almost did consider as local in, in London. I've only been to London once since mid-March for an afternoon. And that was it during the height of summer when I felt comfortable enough to do it. Um, the, the, the thing about the pubs that we really like is that, yes, they don't do the food, but then the places which do do the food, and I'm not talking about people trying to find loopholes or ways of working, the guidance that they do get about this, the food thing, the fact that we did end up with a week's worth of newspapers, news, social media, discussing the merits of a Scotch egg um, was just bonkers and bizarre, really, to quite to be quite truthful. I've, I've heard stories of where people are basically ordering various platters of food and it may or may not get eaten, but it's in front of them. So mm. they are eating while they're there, but they're there for four hours. Um, equally, if you didn't want to eat, you could drink soft drinks or coffee and tea for those four hours, but you couldn't just drink a pint of cask beer on it, you know, without having to do the food thing. Um, and also I think... Suddenly, the, the term wet lead doesn't sound so good either. Um, I, I don't know if there's a better phrase for it. You know, it, it feels like it doesn't feel like the right phrasing now for those. It doesn't seem to do those places justice anymore, um, given that they can't reopen. I, I, I'm genuinely concerned because I think one of the comments, um, Wim van Dangle said it, I don't think we're going to see the full impact yet. It's like a lot of things. It's, like, it's going to be like the impact of Brexit. A lot of that, apart from logistics, economic-wise, may not be felt in year one because of what's happened now. You know, you've still got... Over, you're going to, at some point, there'll be a bounce. If, the, yeah. if there's a vaccine, there'll be a bounce. So you won't necessarily see all of the impacts of certain things that have happened this year. And one of those things is COVID. And, yeah, will places go back to doing business in the same way? Will people want to take a chance and open their own place? thinking that, oh, hold on a second, look what happened in 2020, despite following all of those recommendations. You know, we saw that on that last episode of, say, you know, the British Pubs programme with Tom Kerridge, how much time, effort and expense went into getting these places sorted for them to only have four-month window. And that wasn't even four months for everywhere in the country because we appeared to be turning slowly into Belgium by having different rules in different places depending whether you're in wales scotland northern ireland or england um and that's complicating the situation as well yeah for me there are places which i don't love i still don't want to see them shut because for someone someone somewhere will love it but the places that i love i, I am a bit concerned that they may not be able to fully come back even if they do reopen initially so yeah i've got definite concerns I just echo what you were saying there as well, Martin. I mean, I think probably you're going to have a long tail out of this, you know, because you're going to have a lot of zombie bars and zombie cafes purely because people were going to, people are going to try as long as they can, as hard as they can to keep their businesses going because, as you said, they'll have put so much into keeping them going. 
and at a certain point, probably resources will exhaust themselves and you will start to see failures, but you might not see them in January or February, but you might see them at the end of next year or early the year after. Once people have either exhausted financial resources or their mental health is just shot to pieces because they've been trying to keep their livelihoods going. Um, I did see a certain amount of optimism on Twitter today. I was just following a thread um, from Jeff Allworth, who's a U.S. beer writer. And he was saying, you know, yeah, it's terrible. The situation in the U.S. is, you know, catastrophic. But in 2021 or 2022, there's going to be a lot of people out there who haven't been involved in the beer industry yet, who might have an idea about opening a business or a bar or a bottle shop, who might have an opportunity to enter into the into the sector that they might not have had before because because of all of the you know closures or shutdowns or whatever might happen that there might be a window for other people to get in and that maybe some new blood or some new ideas might come in but again that's a very rosy picture i think and i think it's good to have some optimism but i mean i have to me i i went out on friday night to the on sea brewery and um i was sitting in the tap room because i I was on my own. So, you know, it's one of the things that you're either with your household or on your own and you can be inside. And then very inconsiderately, James from Bottle Share turned up. So I felt obliged to go and sit outside of him. And um, I froze. I mean, it was a cold night on Friday. Yeah. It's typical UK brewery tap room. It's on an industrial estate. Seemingly industrial estates are basically wind, wind tunnels, wherever they are, in whatever part of the country they are. Um, and it, it does make you think that even with the places which are open in tier two, um, that how often, I'm not being funny, and you know, how often do you go out with the person you live with on a regular basis to go for a bite to eat or a drink, especially at the moment when you're probably spending more time at home together than you were used to anyway. Um, and so I, I'm now thinking, when's the next time I am going to go? Because logistically, we always have to make sure we've got our plans right. You can still only have your maximum of six outside. I had to book my food in advance. There's a lot more things to think about. And for some people also, that, pre, that uh, organization beforehand isn't something they're either good at or they like. So they'll just go, oh, fuck it. I can't, I can't be bothered to do all that. Or when, by the time they've decided maybe, actually, yeah, I'll do it, the opportunity's gone. Mm. Something's been booked up already because it's limited space um, and people need to know the numbers. So I, I just think that, there are so many challenges to the places that people do love. And I, I, I can't see how they can all survive. And given what some of the comments have said about some of them have already closed, I'll tell you what, I'm amazed that people are opening or even trying to open during this time. It must be really make you worry. I mean, we were talking to uh, Amity, weren't we, Steve? And I think they opened at the weekend. Uh, they've certainly opened since our last show yeah yeah and it's like blimey yeah all that planning a bit like the stuff you were planning owen which and you, know, you said not time sensitive but there was still a lot of work involved um and you're thinking blimey this timing couldn't have been worse literally could not have been worse um any final thoughts from you steve on the subject just just to really echo some of what you've said there i mean yes that that additional planning that goes into going out for a few beers might be a bit of a barrier to some people. I think, I think another one of, one of the barriers is quite simply the additional cost of having to order food as, as, as well as just going out for a couple of pints could be very prohibitive 
to, to some people as well. Um, and, and I certainly, I, like, like much like itself, I don't want to see any pub closing as, as, as a result of this. But equally, I, I did find myself beginning to get a little bit frustrated by pubs and bars trying to find loopholes and trying to be funny and clever about the loopholes they had found just so they could open. And I'm like, you, you know, th this government is many things one of them I feel is very vindictive and I think if there are too many places that flout too many of the rules they'll just come down even harder mm. on hospitality and they'll say look we gave you a little bit of rope and you hung yourselves so now it's a full closure you're just not opening I still don't know why hospitality is being thrown under the bus the evidence the science the data simply isn't there and you, you know when you you see some of the scenes like we've seen this weekend in london of crowded streets well up and down the country even in colchester that there's been images of crowded high streets people not social distancing no face masks when you see some of those images you can't help but feel for people that work in that work and own and run bars in hospitality because they must feel as though they're getting fucked over day after day after day and it's it's not fair it's not fair on the industry at all but the guidelines are there for a reason and we've got to try and do our best to to, to follow them you know we're i like to think we're almost at the end of this now if we can just hold on a few more months mm. there's a light at the end of the tunnel and and we can i i think i think one of the comments said it in in back there when pubs do reopen, I think it was Les from, from Neptune said it, when pubs do reopen, I think we're going to see an unprecedented show of support for them like we've never seen before. I think I'm hoping that more people will go to their local more regularly and, and order, even if it's just for a couple of pints once a week. I, I think we'll see more of that moving forward. I agree with you to a point. Um, I, while I agree about the bit I agree with is about the looking i i understand places trying to work work within the guidelines as they understand them i don't think making a joke about it and being public about it and basically trying to find a loophole is the same thing and that doesn't help those places which are trying to do the right thing as well you're all part of the same industry um, it's a bit like when people were selling the takeaways during the lockdowns and just letting people stand outside drinking them bonkers you're only you're only doing everyone a disservice at that point you're all part of the same industry you only need one or two bad apples and the media will have it job done um but i do i do uh, the guidelines are there i mean but the fact that you can spend four hours in a place the ventilation could be shit but you're safe you're okay because you've got a plate of food in front of you it's just a mockery i know that they're probably trying to work out ways of stopping people doing pub crawls but, you know, people will find a way around everything if they really want to. And all you're doing is encouraging people to essentially go back to someone's house where there's no regulation, there's no testing, track and trace. And, you know, I often feel guilty now about whether when I go to the gym and when I go to uh, hospitality, whether using the app is actually a good thing or am, I, or am I making it worse? I don't know whether I'm making it worse or better these days because I, I don't seem to have to do it anywhere else. Um, who knows how efficient that app is anyway so I mean I do it I mean I still haven't got any badges for all the check-ins I've done <laughs> but um, yeah I think that um, it's 
I think anyone who can make it work, I hope you do, and I hope you're successful at it. But given that the day we're recording this, we're another week and a bit away from the government issuing their review, we know that things could change. There are certain parts of the county, me and Steve are in, which have definitely been partying hard over the last few weeks by the looks of it. And you could have suddenly even more enhanced restrictions in our bit of the world, in which case all those places which have been taking bookings on the run up to Christmas, suddenly they start cancelling those. Um, it, it's, it, it's, it's tough. I don't envy anyone who's working directly in this industry or is part of the supply chain for this industry at the moment. Fucking nightmare it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all, all, all I'm going to say just, just to finish this is, is, is obviously where possible folks just, just can continue to support your local independence, whether that be your bottle shops that are doing takeouts, if your pubs are doing takeaways and you can support them, just, just continue to support them because there is an end coming to this and, and, and hopefully those venues will be back open soon. Loads of great comments on, on this week's poll, though, and thanks to everybody that get inv got involved. As always, that's just a snapshot of the comments that we had. There will be a link in the show notes to the question. If you want to click on that, you can see all of the responses you've got. Use the hashtag opinions, and you may very well find yourself in this next part of the show. Let us know. Write it down. Let us know. Write it down. Let us know your thoughts and bitter in lingerness. Write it down. So first up from Richard Taylor at Rich Taylor 1608 Cracking show, folks. Looking forward to trying some Neptune beers in the future. I do enjoy hearing the history of a brewery and their backstory, especially a brewery that I'm not too familiar with. From your boy, Rob Edwards, at Rob underscore Edwards 90, stay for the post-credits, guys. Amazing. Who doesn't stay for post-credits these days? Well, only, the, only the best fans stay until <laughs> the very end. From eight beers a week. Great show. Enjoyed hearing about Neptune and their enthusiasm for what they do. Interesting points raised about what's new. Agreed that it is a problem with the industry. It makes me wonder what pushes a beer to be a staple addition to a lineup. Fun post credits too. Laughing emoji. And from Paul at UNRCD, great episode. Julie and Les were brilliant. Thank you for including the outtakes at the end. They were wonderful. I think a lot of people enjoyed the outtakes at the end. It right? would appear so, yes. Yeah. And, uh, but however much you enjoyed the outtakes, it wasn't a patch and actually being there at the time. No, it was, I, it was brilliant. I have to say, I enjoyed them too. I had them playing on the speaker and I thought it was finished and then all of a sudden somebody started laughing and I didn't really know exactly what was going on. <laughs> From Clitheroe Beer Festival at Cliff Beer Fest, just catching up on the latest episode. Massive thanks for the mention for Ju from Julian Les at Neptune, two of the nicest people in the industry. Ian Sutton is still determined to source that poke in the dinosaurs beer for the next beer festival. And then from Wayne at Irish Beer Snob, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Working my way through episodes from early September. Really enjoyed the episode with Points of Brew and the discussion was great. No, we weren't doing weekly still. Otherwise, yeah, I have I no it's, idea what episode it was on. It's never going to catch up, is it, at this rate? <laughs> Number one podcast listened to on the Spotify account, and that's from Bullman's Beer Reviews at Greg Bullman. Uh, we're apparently we're quite big in Sweden as well, Steve. By all accounts, yeah, who knew? Yes. No, it, was, it was a shock to me. Goodness knows <laughs> what you and I sound like to the Swedes. My Spotify rat tells me you're my second favourite podcast of 2020. My love of beer is right up there with my love of art from Jake Williams at Baggins71. And there was, there was quite a lot of um, comments from the, the Spotify Wrapped 
last week because that that's obviously sort of like the end of the year on Spotify and they give listeners their that their user stats. Uh, we as a podcast that are on Spotify get our own podcast stats as well, and we're going to be going through some of those on the next show as as part of our end of year review. So we've got those to look forward to. One final comment this week from Mark Johnson. Uh, finishing this show over the weekend, great chat. The perfect guests to talk about the current tier farce. The accents made me long for a trip out to Liverpool, though. Sad emoji. Outtakes are definitely welcome going forward. They will always have to be good ones, though. Yeah, we're, we're not just going to do them for the sake of it. They've, they've, got to be, they've got to happen naturally, and when we feel like they're right, we, we will indeed put them in. I mean, that, that, those outtakes, I think, extended our recording by about 20 minutes by the time we got ourselves back together. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. That, that little bit at the end was only a snapshot of how long that actually went on as well. That was much, much longer than that, that's for sure. I don't know about you, mate, but I have been dragging out this last bit of the beer for about 15 minutes now because I, I started pretty hard on this. Um, do you have any final thoughts to add to the, the, the utopian CERN speciality? Nothing. I would just end up repeating myself. I mean, you've just drained your last bit. I have got a dribble left. I could have finished it before we finished opinions, mate. Yeah, easy. So, so easy to drink. Um, I'm so glad I ordered some more of those. And I, I think... Emma and I may have ordered even more over, over the weekend as well as we started drinking. Think? Well, we, we did order even more. I think, I think Emma went in for a mixed pack and made sure there was plenty of black lagers in there. We've, we've, we've enjoyed it so much. Um, if you do have an opportunity to try that one, give it a try because it is an absolute stunner of a beer. Owen, how's your um, chocolate black IPA going? It's not bad. I have to say, I, this is one of the reasons why I love the show because I get to live vicariously through you guys to, while you drink all of these beers that I'm never going to see in my entire life, unless I visit across the channel to London, which as we were talking earlier on, is not likely <laughs> to happen soon. Uh, it's actually quite lovely. Um, as it warmed up a little bit, um, it became much more of a sort of black, a bitter black IPA than a sort of hoppy porter, um, which was quite nice. Um, I'm just down to the dregs of it too. I've been sort of drinking it slowly, but it's, it's lovely. And those guys are if you ever get it, I mean, if you're ever in Belgium in the future and you get a chance to visit, they've got a lovely little tap room in a small little Wallonian village, um, which is very incongruous, but it's a really nice place to go for a couple of beers. I think I need to do a bit of a, a week in Belgium, take the car, if I'm still allowed to, when, after 1st of January 2021, um, and uh, when everything returns to normal. Because I think so, this, I mean, I've been to Brussels loads of times, been to Bruges, Steve has been to Bruges. But some of the play, some of the places that I see people go to outside of the main uh, metropolis areas are definitely on my radar and places that I'd love to go and visit. I, it would just take a little bit more planning with the um, staying nearby because once the car's parked up, it's not been driven again probably for 24 hours, I imagine. You just leave the car in Brussels and just uh, just bike around, take the train, bike, take the train, and then you can fall asleep on the train on the way home and you won't injure anybody. Sounds like a good plan. Mark, Sounds like the way to do it. We'll tap you I, up next year. I was just going to say, I know a guide who can certainly, for a very good, <laughs> for a very, for a very reasonable, for a very reasonable per diem, is quite happy to show you around. Well, there's quite another good segue that one. <laughs> Indeed. Let's move on to our final beer of the evening. We're not actually going to introduce this one. We're going to let our guest introduce this third beer for us this evening. So, Owen, what is it we are enjoying right now? Basically, I'm going to start right and say that, you know, um, Martin was asking, like, what it's like to publish a self published book. Um, 
It's quite difficult, but if you publish a self-published book and you brew a beer to celebrate the book, it's actually, it turns out to be much easier. So we are drinking a Scotch 1920, which is uh, brewed by myself and Brussels Beer Project to celebrate the launch of the book, which I'm sure we'll get into. It's a non- 1920s uh, Scotch strong ale. Basically what that means is, um, for anybody who's been to Belgium, you're probably familiar with the Scotch ale style, which is quite thick and dark and sweet. And it's been a style that's been popular in Belgium. Uh, since for a hundred years um it's a style that comes up in the book and we thought to bring that style to life we would go back into the archives of um old english breweries who were producing these styles a hundred years ago find a recipe that was being sold in belgium and then recreate that recipe as faithfully as we could on a modern uh, brewing system in brussels um in order to celebrate the launch of the book and i think we've did a, a pretty good job so it's a strong Scottish ale, so it's uh, 8.8%. As you can see, for anybody who's ever drunk, well, you can't see it because it's a podcast, but uh, you guys can see it. Um, anyone who's ever drunk a, a Scotch ale in Belgium, they're dark, treacly, they look more like a double, but this is quite clear, um, which was the first thing that really struck us when, when we brewed it, when we when we took a look at the malt bill. Um, yeah, I can get into the specifications about what's in the beer um, as we as we drink it, but I'm interested to hear you guys what you think of it because it's an it's an unusual beer, maybe not from style, but the interpretation of the style itself. Good. Can we try it then? Yeah, yeah. Come and, on, and, come and, then, and then and then we'll tell you. Yeah, Cheers. go. Cheers. Cheers. I'm glad you gave that little bit of the backdrop to the the style and the color and the feel of it because I have had some Scotch ales when I've been in um, Belgium. Yeah. And they always put me in the mind of a, a wee heavy, uh, almost a hybrid between a wee heavy and a double. Yeah. Um, whereas this is quite fruity, quite light. Um, you're still getting, I think, that sort of Belginess, Belgian esters on the nose, but really subtle. Um, there's a sweetness to it that carries through, and then a bit of a dry finish. I, I mean, my initial thoughts are. Uh, well, a bit like any decent Belgian beer, they know how to brew a drinkable high ABV. <laughs> as me and Steve are both found to our cost in the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I don't think there's anything that you've said there that I would disagree with, even down to the the the, the look of uh, of the beer. M- much like yourself, when I when I saw Scotch Ale, my mind instantly went to wee heavy, and, and therefore it's going to be a lot darker than that. It's going to be a lot browner than than, than that. And yeah, this comes out looking much more like a like like, like a triple. It, it's got a lot of those characteristics that, that that you would you would get in a triple. It it's certainly showing its ABV as, as, as you're drinking <laughs> it. And, and there is a lovely balance of bitterness and subtle sweetness on the finish. Um, it's lovely and dry on, on, on the finish as well. And it is um, dangerously drinkable. But again, that, that seems to be a phrase that we're using an awful lot at the, at the moment, Martin. Um, yes, uh, but I think I use it definitely a lot when I, whenever I come across Belgian beers I like, just because... There is definitely a skill set in Belgium of being able to produce those ABV beers. I mean, I remember the first time, first time I went to to Belgium probably about fifteen years ago. Now, if I think about it properly, sitting there outside, as as Owen described it earlier, terrace, drinking the beers, all with their own little you know glasses branded, not really thinking about it until I got up, and then <laughs> knowing that I'd had one maybe one triple too many that day that particular day. Um, and it just looks so good in the glass. 
This looks Doesn't so it? Yeah. good. I mean, you partnered up with uh, Brussels Beer Project and what I find with the beers from Brussels Beer Project, they're very clean. They're very clean as well. There's a real clean and crispness to it, which is the same with this one as well. Yeah, I mean, you tip you you guys in your in your um, descriptions really touched on some of the points I think that we were aiming for and that we're really delighted. Like Steve, you say triple, a triple. Um, you know, we don't have any records, but a triple is a style that dates from the 1930s that was influenced by English breweries. And when we were when we were drinking this the first time we tried it, we were like, ah. I mean, if you put a Belgian yeast, so we use a, a Scottish uh, yeast strain in this. And it was like, if you put a Belgian yeast strain in this and amped up some of those more estuary, fruity, spicy flavors, you could definitely see that if a Belgian monk was drinking this in the 1930s, he might think that was something that we could make. And and and, and Martin, when you were saying, you know, uh, you know, it's a mixture between like a like a wee heavy and a devil. Devil, the 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 legend has it, the original devil yeast strain was a strain uh, stolen from Scottish breweries. So, you know, all of these things and, 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 you know, it's a little bit about what we talk about, what I talk about in the book, all of these sort of English influences kind of feed into Belgian beer, which a lot of times people think is this thing that just emerged and exists for time immemorial. You know, it's like a historic brewing tradition, but so much of the Belgian beers that everybody is familiar with these days are early 20th century inventions that were influenced by English breweries and by German breweries. Which I think is, comes out a lot in, in, in the book as well, doesn't it? Um, I think so, yeah. I mean, like most of the breweries that I talk about in the book, um, they became successful because either they were brewing uh, pale ales and stouts and scotches or they were brewing um, you know, Bavarian beers or Bohemian beers. I think I think there's one one bit particularly in the book, and I, I, we we keep referring to the book, and we, we should probably actually <laughs> reference the book. So 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 the book we're talking about is is, is your self published um, book, which I, again I'm holding up to the screen like our listeners can see it, <laughs> um, but they they can't. Um, but this is uh, it's called Brussels Beer City, uh, stories from Brussels brewing past, and and it does go through quite the history of of, of brewing in in the city, um, and and this beer and this style in particular is 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 referenced in there, um, talking about how it was first kind of launched in the nineteen twenties as as a result of people drifting away from after after World War One that they didn't want to drink German beer anymore, and they that they wanted to drink English beer. And, and that, that was as a result of them drifting away and their drinking styles drifting away and the, the breweries noticing that the consumers actually wanted something different. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. I mean, a couple of the breweries we talk about, I talk about in the book, um, you know, they start off brewing uh, Bavarian pills or Bavarian lager beers and then move on to like, you know, Pilsner beers um, everything bottom fermented. Around the turn of the 20th century, English pale ales become quite popular. And then obviously World War I happens and Germ- uh, Germany um, occupies Belgium, takes, takes every, all, every piece of metal from every brewery it can find and melts it down for armaments. Um, and then post-1918 armistice and, and recovery, you know, English beers, the Tommies, the trenches, all of that is like comes together in this massive love affair between Belgian drinkers and English breweries. And you see that in some of the names, like, so we were talking about Christmas beers earlier on, the Belgian Christmas beer tradition kind of came about 
from that period, Scotch ales being brought over from, from Scotland and from the UK, being given a Belgian twist either with the yeast or adding spices, um, as Belgian brewers tend to do. And then you get a Christmas beer. And then the other trend was obviously pale ales, stouts then became really popular um, to the point where in the early 1940s, you know, Guinness were brewing um, Guinness special export just for the Belgian market. And then obviously Scotch ales. Um, still more, I mean, maybe not so much these days as let's say 20 or 30 years ago, but for much longer than in Scotland, Scotch ales were being brewed and exported for Belgium. See, and, I, I found that really surprising because before you you kindly sent us both a copy of the, the, the book and a bottle of the beer to enjoy, I would I would never in in a million years have, have thought that Scotch ale was synonymous with Belgium. I, I just would never have, have put those two together. I mean, it does yeah. sound bonkers, doesn't it? Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> with all the other beer styles that are available in Belgium, that something which has a fairly simple title such as Scotch ale made it. Yeah, but you have to, I mean, I, I, and you can see that in the beer that we're drinking. Scotch ale back in the 1920s. I mean, we're all, and this is, all, so, you know, there's a lot of informed speculation in this, but there would have been different kinds of Scotch ales back in those days. I mean, you talk to somebody like Ron Pattinson, who's the beer historian who gave us the recipe for this, for this beer that he got from a Scottish brewery. Um, he'll tell you, you know, Scotch ale could be light, it could be dark, it could be reasonably moderate ABV, and it could be super high ABV. You know, it was a weird style that sort of eventually kind of crystallized, at least in Belgium, into this, as you guys were saying, you know, the wee heavy style, you know, dark, sweet, strong. And those three characteristics, is it, any, anyone who's ever drunk Belgian beer knows that Belgian drinkers love dark, sweet, and, or at least they have historically dark, sweet, and strong beers. They love their alcohol. They love a dark beer. You're talking about like Chimay Bleu, any of the quadruples, uh, West Mala Double. And they, they love they love they love a good you know punch of alcohol. Yeah, and I think you you get apart from the darkness, there's all of those threads are running through this beer. Yep, yep. definitely. Yeah. yeah, and we um for the launch back in October, we put uh, forty liters of it on cask. So we got a cask from uh, sent over from England, and that was even that was even a really interesting experience because it had slightly less carbonation. It was a much creamier mouthfeel. Um, but still those characteristics came through. I mean, there's a little bit of honey in this one because we had to adapt the recipe. Um, so there's a little bit of honey vibes to it, but I think we're pretty happy in how it came out as a, you know, you can never recreate the style as it was brewed in 1928 because technology has moved on. Uh, ingredients have moved on. The malt is not going to be the same. We couldn't get the hops that we wanted, but I think, you know, if people were drinking this in 1928, they must have gotten drunk pretty quick. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd say it's, <laughs> it, it certainly packs a punch, uh, and it is. It is. It does. Having read the book, it is. It is the perfect accompaniment to, to, to the book because it's. It is referenced in there a, a number of times. What What was it that, that that finally made you to to actually put something physical out? In, 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 in writing was was it again as we said earlier you know you had this increased time on your hands d during lockdown and and you thought well, if I don't do it now I'm never going to do it or it, was it always the plan to to, to, to write and self-publish your, your own book it's a little bit of the, the two of them Steve um 
So I wrote the first article that features in this book, which is about uh, Brasserie Atlas, which was a brewery that brewed Lambic at the same time as it was brewing pills back in the 1940s, which is, I mean, for anyone who knows much about brewing technology, you'll know that brewers love to keep their wild beers separate from their conventional beers because yeast, you know, to paraphrase uh, Jurassic Park, yeast finds a way, you know, yeast will find its way into all sorts of beer. Um, and I, I published that in about, I think I published that in early 2018. And I got an email from um, Belgian Beer and Food Magazine, um, Rest in Peace no longer exists, uh, asking if they would publish that art, if they could publish that, if they could buy that article. And I said, sure, nobody had ever paid for anything I'd written before. And then once that article was in the magazine, they asked if I could do a couple of more articles. And then that, uh, that relationship kind of crystallized into an idea of a series of articles about Brussels beer history, um, which would then be collected into a collection published by the magazine. So that was the original idea. And that was an idea from all the way back in mid 2019. Um, so I got to work with my archive sources and, you know, visiting the city, visiting the old brewery sites, started putting the articles together, doing the work. Um, and by I think it was maybe January, February of 2020. Well, actually by December, 2019, the book was finished. By January, February 2020, it became clear that Belgian Beer and Food Magazine was no longer going to publish any magazines, let alone any other books. So I got in touch with Paul, who was the edit editor at the time and the founder of the magazine. I said, look, Paul, I'm just going to do this myself. Um, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'll do it and, and, and I'll sort it out. And he was like, yeah, fine, go on, uh, do it. The work is there. You know, you might as well put it out there. So then I... Uh, yeah, I basically just came face to face with the Amazon self-publishing um, industry and tried to navigate that and figured how I could get it out. And the plan was to do it before the summer, but 2020 being as it was, that obviously didn't work out. And uh, it took me a couple of extra months more in just in terms of design and putting the articles together, getting it proofread, getting people to ha take a look at it and managed to put it together to get it out in October. So yeah, it was a little, I mean, I, we were talking about Pete Brown earlier on. Um, he he published he self-published one book and i think he's in the middle of publishing another one self-publishing another one um it is i mean it's surprising how how much of a challenge it can be but it was satisfying you know as a, as a writer even though it's self-published to see something in print sitting on a bookshelf you know there's a certain sense of validation there about that yeah, and it's, it's it's a beautiful looking little book as well. So it's, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's a feel to it as well, isn't yeah. it? Hmm? There's a feel to it. The actual even just the cover. There's a feel to it. And a matte feel. Yeah. Well, I have to I have to give props to my 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 friend, um, Godfather of one of my children, Rory Talbot, who put the he put the design together. I gave him the text and I gave him the photos, and I said, "Can you make something that looks reasonably?" you know, half decent, because I wanted it to look like a book. I didn't want it, to, you know, there's been some really good self-published books um, on beer out in the last sort of 18 months. Boke and Bailey, the, the bloggers, they put out a collection of their books, which was a big inspiration for me um, last year. Um, German writer Andreas, or Austrian German, uh, Andreas Krenmeier put out a book all about Vienna Lager um, earlier on in the year, which again was a really good book, self-published um, and my book is, I mean, it's what, it, it, it clocks out at, if I remember correctly, because like I was saying off, off mic, it's been so long since I looked at the thing, it clocks out at, you know, 90 pages, 112 pages in total, you know, with, with, with notes and everything. It's not a big book, it's a slim volume, but it still exists as a tactile uh, piece of work. And I think, I think that's the thing I'm probably most happy about at this point. 
I think it should be. I think as Steve said, it's it's also a very easy read as well yeah. because they're it's a story about one city, but a load of short stories contained within that city. And it doesn't take long to get the feel for it. And I think once mm. you've read one story, you think, oh, I can fit another one in here. And then another one, it, rather than it being one long story about maybe just one brewery, the way you've sliced and diced it, and every now and again, there's a little bit of a tie-in with maybe a previous chapter and a previous story. I think the style works really well. I think once I actually started reading it, it was really just a couple of days, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think it benefits from the fact that it is a, it's not a narrative. It's a collection of magazine articles. And anyone who's ever written for a magazine knows that there are word limits and those word limits will force you to be as concise as possible. So I think uh, most of the articles are anywhere between 2,000 and 3,000 words, which is not, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's not, a, it's not long. And, you know, as you were saying, Matt, there's a lot of overlapping themes, you know, these breweries all experience the same things at the same time. So you read one article or one story in the book, you know, it's going to echo in one or two of the other ones because they all exist around the same time and they all take place, you know, in a very specific period of time. I, I think I think that comes across time and time again in, in the book. And there's, there's there's a couple of points that I just want to pick out and, and actually question you on on on, on this. So, sorry to do this kind of almost, <laughs> almost live on air. No, 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 um, no, no. I was I was expecting an ambush. So I have I have my I have my well thumbed copy here in front of me. And, and, and apologies in advance for any butchery of, 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 of names that, that goes on here. But, but the first thing that, that really stood out for me was um, the importance of Brasserie Vilmans. Yeah. How did I do with that one? Wielemans, yeah. Wielemans. Um, <laughs> yeah, not far off. Nowhere near. Um, which comes up time and time again. In, in, in the book and in the history of in the history of beer in Brussels and, and, and again from an outsider's point of view it's a brewery that I'd never heard of and, and until I started reading this book and it's probably a brewery that maybe a lot of our listeners uh, have, have never heard of but you, you can't understate the importance of that no. brewery to, to where you are now with, with with beer in Brussels. It's crazy isn't it because you have a brewery that was founded in the late 1860s and brewed right up until September 1988 and to all intents and purposes does not exist in the popular consciousness at all. Now you you will and I spoke to people for the book who would have grown up in Brussels in the 70s and the 80s and they would have drunk beers from the brewery but you know those people are aging out of the population. I mean that sounds quite cruel <laughs> aging out of the population. Uh, they're, getting, <laughs> they're growing old and uh, you know moving on. Um, and here, there's a brewery, you know, which, and I really like that one because the building still exists. And so many of the buildings of these breweries um, that were active in the first half of the 20th century in Brussels have all been knocked down. Here's a brewery that the building still exists. You can, you can find the logos of the beers around bars in town. So there is still, there's still like uh, architectural evidence of the beers that were made. But here's a brewery that was, yeah, like I said, started in the 1860s. They started brewing Lambic and Goose, which would have been styles that are indigenous to Brussels. Anyone who's ever been to Brasserie Cantillon will know what I'm talking about. Um, and then made the business decisions to start making German beers, German style beers, um, massively successful all the way through to building Europe's largest and most technologically advanced brewery in the 1930s to a sort of post-war explosion of bars, cafes. They made a pills. They made um, 
uh, CTS Scotch, which was the Scotch sort of that we were inspired to brew our own Scotch. And then by the 1980s, we were sort of in such bad shape that they were taken over by the evil Stella Artois from Leuven and then, and then shut down in 1988. And that was it. It was sort of the last big conventional brewery in the city closed down. And from that point on, you had one brewery in Brussels between sort of the early 90s and 2010. That's, that, that's madness. There, there are isn't echo, it? There are yeah. echoes with London, isn't there? With, um, you know, we got to a point where in London we only had one or two breweries. You know, I think one point there was three breweries, meantime being very new and Fuller's and Young's. But, you know, the, the bigger breweries like Whitbread, Watney's, Truman's, who had dominated the scene, not just necessarily in the UK. Um, and and they're, they're long gone. I mean, Whitbread own Premier Inn and Costa Coffee. So <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's a whole generation of people probably, you know, my, my, my son, if he ever gets into anything like that, Whitbread won't be recognisable to him as being the next brewery. Although, again, a bit like the Wheelermans, the Whitbread Brewery in London still exists. Yeah, I stayed. Did, I stayed in the hotel across the road. Oh, did you? Oh, what, yeah. from um, on 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 Chiswick on Chiswell Street. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and both Watneys and Whitbread make cameo appearances, and you can still buy Whitbread Pale Ale in bars in Brussels and in Belgium. You know, the, 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 that sort of legacy lives on. But it's true. It's like it's the same. I think you know. Post-war, post-industrialization, you could talk about any kind of industry in London and Brussels was not dissimilar that, you know, the, it becomes expensive to, to, to brew there. It becomes expensive to have property. Uh, there's consolidation. Businesses fail. The industry moves on. It becomes a number of very small, uh, very important players. And gradually they eat each other until there's one left standing. Now, I don't know what that might have been in London or in the south of England, but in Belgium, it was uh, Stella. Now, now that's that's really interesting because that links on to the second point I, I, I had from the, the, the book as well, which, uh, and I'm going to read this one as well. So this is from page 71. Oh, I'm going to close my ears then. I don't, I really hate it. When it's, people... it's the third, it's the third <laughs> paragraph. And no, no, it's because it's, the, the, the thing is, Owen, it's such a fleeting comment of, of something so massive uh, that I just had to ask you about it. So it says the government negotiated and then secret joint takeover by the Artois and Pied Booth breweries the first step to what would eventually become interbrew and then ab imbev and then you just go on to talk about something else is it <laughs> like in in that one sentence in your book you you reference that the start of a global brewing giant and then just ignored that it even happened was that was that a conscious thing that you just didn't want to get into that story or did you feel as though you said all that was needed to be said at that point I think it's a bit of both. I think, number one, I mean, any Belgian reading this of a certain age will know that story. Um, they will know the trajectory of, of InBev, of Stella, and how that came about. Um, and on the other hand, yeah, I mean, the story is about Brussels. And at that point, sort of Belgian brewing history and Brussels brewing history, they bifurcate. And uh, Belgian brewing history goes on to be the story of Stella Artois, InBev, um, 
or Interbrew, then InBev, then AB InBev and, and all the rest of it. And Brussels Brewing goes into a dead end for, you know, 20 years. So I, I think, yeah, that's probably true. But it's like, it is. I mean, it's funny reading this. And there's a book out there, which I haven't bought because it costs 100 euros. And I'm a, you know, jobbing self-employed writer, um, which is the history of Stella Artois. And they go into a little bit more th- that kind of secret deal, which was basically, for anyone who hasn't read the book, there was a brewery in Brussels, who had expanded to, in, into Wallonia, so a francophone part to the east. Um, that brewery had failed. It was bought by Schlitz, the American lager brewery, which was one of the weirder uh, foreign interventions. And then um, it failed completely. And the government asked Stella at that time and Piet Buff, which was a, which was a Wallonian brewery, um, and they would have brewed Jupiler at that time. They would have been the brewers of Jupiler. Obviously, Jupiler and Stella are now brewed by the same people. Um, to come in buy out that brewery and then basically use their facilities to brew Stella and Jupiler and they mostly brew Jupiler. And then that eventually in the 1980s became Interbrew, which was the brewery that sort of started to cannibalize Belgian brewing in the 1980s. And then in the 1990s became, you know, InBev and now is like the world's, I think I heard on um, the Pelicle podcast the other week that it brews like 30% of the, all the beer brewed in the world. That's astonishing. That's a phenomenal number, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? And I mean, the headquarters is still in Leuven, which is a university city of 100,000 people, uh, which is mad. Um, but there you go. That's sort of the, the, the depth of influence that Belgian or Brazilian Belgian, in this instance, brewing um, has had. It's, it's a fascinating story, though. And, and, and I think you do really encapsulate it really well in, 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 in the book. And I would absolutely in, encourage any of our listeners that are interested in Belgian beer and certainly the history of beer in Brussels to, to, to get hold of your book and to give it a go. What we'll do is we'll put a link in the show notes to, to where people can buy it from. And, and, and hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll pick it. I mean, there are still some available, right? Yeah, you can just buy it on print on demand on Amazon. So if you go okay. for a print, if you go for a print copy, they print it somewhere in Poland and deliver it to you direct without any involvement from me. So that, that sounds like the new that sounds like the new UK passports. <laughs> <laughs> so as I say, there'll be a link in the show notes to that. Owen, where else can people find you online? Obviously, we will put show, links in the show notes to to all of the various social media and to to your site. But um, give what you do a shout out at this point. Yeah, so uh, beercity.brussels is basically where I'm at. Um, That's the website where I put up all of my blog posts. As I was saying, you know, every two or three weeks, I'll put something new up. Hopefully, if I can pull my finger out, there'll be a new article by Friday. So the day after this comes out, I guess. Um, You can find me at Owen Walsh on Twitter. Uh, It's a difficult name to spell, so do check the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, Brussels Beer City on Instagram. and Twitter and yeah the podcast will be coming out in January probably February at some point Brussels Beer City podcast great stuff well, as I say thank you for sending us a copy of the book and thank you so much for sending us the beer as well because it is a very very tasty beer um, Martin do you have any final thoughts on the Scotch 1920 from Brussels Beer Project well the only thought I would add is I wouldn't have minded trying it at the cask of course, <laughs> the king of cask. No, I wouldn't cask mind that at yeah. all, especially in Belgium as well. But I can imagine the way Owen described it with it being just maybe slightly less carbonation, but maybe a slightly creamier mouthfeel. Um, it just would have brought something different to the game, but take nothing away from the bottled version, which is how I consume most of my Belgian beers. Let's face it, bloody delicious. 
Yeah, we um on the we did the launch of the launch event was the evening before second lockdown, and we had a forty liter cask, and I think we drank thirty liters of it in the end. Good effort. Well, you don't, don't waste it. Well done. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Owen, thank you very much for joining us and, and sharing your thoughts with us this evening on, on a number of things. Martin, what have we got coming up next time? Well, we're doing an 8.8% beer tonight. That could seem quite light because <laughs> it's the now infamous end of year show where I've spent the whole of 2020 t- saying to Steve, no, we can't add that beer to the Monday night recording. Um, Especially think- as we've got to do... Bottles individually this year as well. Yeah, we're not Normally we'd be sharing them, wouldn't we? Yeah. <laughs> and so the only one which is a tradition, we will definitely be doing the Fuller's 2019. And I think we've lined up potentially another three beers each on top of that. Yeah. So as well. So if you, you know, uh, maybe harking back to past Cannonball shows springs to mind at the moment as a potential reference point. Um, so yes, and we shall be discussing our, you know, beers of the year that kind of stuff the usual the usual rambling from us but we should also give a few stats and facts as steve said from the old spotify as well not just from spotify but just just from across the year we'll, we'll be looking back at some of the things we've done we are encouraging you our listeners to let us know what your beers breweries and moments whatever they've been of the year have let us know on twitter use the hashtag opinions and we'll find you and make sure you get included uh we do have just a couple of other things coming up before that we've got the crimbo crawl is is still happening on the saturday night before our next recording there are still some spaces left for the first session once again there's a link in the show notes if you want to get involved in that the password for the tickets is warm hugs all lowercase all one word and we do also have before our next show the recording of beer nation 2020 to look forward to which is the collaborative podcast that we're involved in with about half a dozen other uk podcasts which should be out before the end of the year so keep your ears out for that one so lots lots going on before the end of the year for us mate um but yes we will be finishing it in a blaze of glory i i, I think well, on that final show the, the wheels the, speaking about owen's wheels coming off earlier in the show there could be a repeat for you and me steve I, I think so and that's that's probably a good note to to sign off and to go and finish off our scotch 1920 hour Voyez l'omnibus avec des femmes